16th of January at 11am, um, followed by refreshments there, and then heading on to Tawonga Cemetery out in the beautiful Mount Beauty area uh, for burial following. So if you knew Dan, um, then I'm sure uh, he'd love to um, send him off. You'd love to send him off in a, in a lovely way. Um, if you can make it, then um, please do come. Uh, I will be leading the service uh, for Dan. Um, let us pray as we begin this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that right now you would uh, come upon us in our minds and our hearts and our ears, Lord, to listen and hear from you. Lord, may you, you reach into our hearts and lives and touch us this morning through the word, through your scriptures, we pray. Amen. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. And last week we learnt from Jonah in our message all about following God's directions for our lives. It was a bit of a cautionary tale, wasn't it? And as I was studying for that message, I came across a great resource called, uh, a book called Divine Direction, Seven Decisions That Will Change Your Life by Craig Rochelle. And so today I thought it would be really fitting to actually look at what those seven decisions are for discovering divine direction in our lives. We'd all agree that big life-changing decisions, the big things like a new job, the person to marry, moving to a new town or state for university or study or, you know, um, they're all big, huge decisions and it's clear that they send countless consequences rippling through our lives. But smaller choices can also have big effects. Like falling dominoes, even our smallest decisions sometimes cascade into consequences we could never have seen coming. Like little did I know that when I accepted an invitation from a concert band to tour Europe, that as a 17-year-old, that on that tour I would meet Kelly and then set the course of the rest of our lives together. The decisions we make today determine the stories that we tell about our lives tomorrow. All the choices we make each day keep accumulating, forming the tapestry that is our life story. So what are the best decisions that we can make? What are the best decisions that we can make? As followers of Jesus, what are the important decisions about relationships, about family, about careers, about where to put down our roots. What are the best decisions that we can make to not only honour the Lord, but set our future and align them with our faith and our deepest value? Well, the first decision is this. Start. Start where you are. So many people think a successful life is made up of just a few big decisions. And big decisions are important, but a truly meaningful life doesn't happen through a few big decisions. You build it by stacking hundreds and hundreds of smaller ones. Vincent van Gogh understood this when he said, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. So let's start small. Zechariah chapter 4 verse 10 says, Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Start where you are. Make a decision. I will do today 
what I can do to enable me to do tomorrow what I can't do today. Good habits, well, you see, they often create other good habits. The opposite is also true. The absence of strategic habits generates bad habits. It's a bit like flossing. It's a healthy discipline to have a healthy set of gums and teeth, but who enjoys flossing? It's not enjoyable, but it's a good, healthy habit to do. Now, some of us might get discouraged because we see people who we come across, that, that almost, we come across them and they're, they're like an overnight success. And it gets frustrating. But behind every great success story is always another story. You see, successful people often joke that they spent years becoming an overnight success. We only see the overnight bit. We don't see the years before. And what many don't realise is that the things no one sees are the things that result in what everyone wants. And Daniel is a great example of this. If you remember, King Darius was the reigning king of Persia. As his kingdom grew, he appointed 120 satraps or governors to handle the regional matters and help govern the people. The king then chose three administrators to oversee those 120, and Daniel was one of the chosen leaders. Over time, by consistently serving the king with an excellent spirit, Daniel stood out among all the other satraps and administrators. Eventually, the king decided to place Daniel in charge of the entire kingdom. He was like the, the, the prime minister, the, the governor that ruled all. He was basically the most powerful person other than the king himself. So Daniel, he was an overnight success, right? Well, actually, nothing could be further from the truth. There's a story behind every story. Why was Daniel successful and favoured above the others and respected by the king so much? Well, the answer lies in Daniel's story that a lot of people might skim over in the small decisions he made on the ordinary days of life. If you remember the story, the other leaders were so jealous of Daniel that they tried to find grounds and charges to put against him, but were unable to do so. In Daniel 6, we read that they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So they got the king to make an edict that for 30 days no one could pray to anyone but the king because they knew Daniel daily prayed to the Lord. Daniel continued to pray to the Lord as he had three times a day, every day. And every day he worshipped God, he aligned his heart with God's heart. He sought God's will to be done through his life. Because of Daniel's consistent, open and visible prayer focus, he grew as a follower of God as a person and as a leader. The small daily discipline of prayer equipped him to face the big scary test of those hungry lions. And he did that as an 80-year-old. Starting something small and then faithfully continuing it made his story so rich that it's been told for thousands of years. What are those small decisions that you can make that you can start now. Maybe it's caring for your body. Maybe it's caring for your finances. Perhaps it's investing into your family or even flossing. Who knows? 
What's one thing that you can have a sense of what God wants you to start? And there's an interesting story in the Old Testament of one of the leaders of Israel, King Ahab. And a prophet explained that God would change Israel's story by giving the enemy army into the hands of Israelites. Ahab just couldn't see it though. He, he asked, well, who's going to do this? And the prophet answered, this is what the Lord says, that junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, the king asked. And the prophet answered, you will. You will. If you want to see what God will accomplish, we have to move toward him. God will finish it, but you have to start it. So what's your one thing? What's one discipline that you need to start so that you can grow spiritually in faithful obedience to the Lord? Maybe it's reading through the Bible this year, or joining a small group, or serving in the ministry of the church, or volunteering with a local community group, or growing as a leader, growing as a husband or wife, or learning from a mentor, or praying daily, or getting your finances in order and implementing a budget. Or maybe it's determining to increase your hospitality towards others, and maybe even serving on or leading our hospitality team. What's one thing that you need to begin? Start a discipline today that will change your life. Just start where you are. Just take that first step. It's just one step. There's no better time to start either than now. Walt Disney said, the way to get started is to quit talking and start doing. That's a pretty wise thing to say, I reckon. So decision one is start. Decision two, stop. <laughs> Sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? But our stories are the result of many different variables. You don't get to choose your parents, your family, or where you're born. During childhood, we had all of our big decisions made for us, where we lived, what school we went to, what we ate, even when we went to bed. As we got older, the grown-ups responsible for us gradually handed us more responsibility, letting us make choices and expecting us to face any consequences. And that process continues for the rest of our lives. Part of becoming a mature adult is learning over time to accept responsibility for our choices. We learn that if we drive over the speed limit, we could get a ticket, probably from Cole or his team. Um, we learn that uh, if we date the wrong person, we could end up heartbroken. On the other hand, if we show up at work on time, every day, do our best work, have a great attitude, you know, our boss will probably be pretty happy and might be more favourable towards giving us a raise or a promotion. If we start exercising and improving a diet, then our waist might shrink and we might achieve a goal that we've set for ourselves. You know what? A year ago, I switched from sugary drinks nearly all, all the time to water. And I'm not skinnier, and that really annoyed me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't drink anywhere near as much soft drink, and all I drink is water, pretty much, but no good. It must be what I'm eating, not just what I'm drinking. But if we attend classes for those in school or going to university, take notes, actually study for exams, then good grades aren't out of our reach. Every choice we make, both big and small, affects aspects of our life. When we learn to take responsibility for our actions or we learn to make excuses or find scapegoats, 
you know, e even, even when things happen that are beyond our control, we still choose how we respond. Wisdom is God's navigational tool for helping us make decisions about the life we want to live. The tricky part is stopping for a moment and actually using it, actually using God's wisdom before we make a wrong decision. One of the best decisions we can make when feeling an impulse or facing a high-stakes dilemma is to simply stop. Take a time out. Hit pause. Sleep on it. Think it over. Get some godly wisdom from people you trust. Don't send that email. Wait on it and then see if you're going to send it again tomorrow. And as we are stopped, ask yourself first, if I go down this road, what story will I end up telling? And second, is that what I want my story to be? Our decisions today, both big and small, determine the direction our life will take tomorrow. There's a great example of stopping to reconsider a better course of action in the Old Testament. In Exodus 18, Moses knew something had to change or he was going to fall apart trying to manage all the demands on his life. I'm sure that we've all felt that at times. After successfully leading the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, Moses became responsible for hearing all of the Israelites' problems and handing down judgments. He kept this up all day, every day, until he was spent. Finally, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, came to offer him some tough love. And he said in Exodus 18, verse 17, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. You know, I reckon this is something we could all relate to. You know, maybe we need the same encouragement that Jethro offered to Moses in verse 19. He said, may God be with you. That's where he started. What good advice, hey? May God be with you. He went on to suggest a simple, practical solution. Stop doing it the way that you've been doing it and get some help. Jethro told Moses to select a few capable leaders and train them to handle the disputes he had been hearing himself. He described a system that could handle the volume of complaints without overwhelming any of the leaders. Essentially, a hierarchy in which some people would oversee thousands, some hundreds, some fifties and some tens. That's Delegation 101, right? And we're told that Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything that his father-in-law said. He stopped trying to do everything himself and that made all the difference. Most of the great stories we have about Moses' exceptional leadership, the things we remember him for, took place after he made one simple practical change. Don't miss the importance of Moses' decision. It wasn't that he did more, he did less. The choice to stop doing something not only changed his circumstances, but also changed the stories that Moses would one day tell. The same is true for you. God may call you to stop something so you can step into something else. The writer of the Hebrews said in 
uh, 12, chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, what is the one thing that's restricting you? What sin is so easily entangling you? Lay it aside. In one translation it says, throw it off. I like that even better. Don't just lay it aside because you might pick it up. Throw it away. By the power of Christ and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, you can stop anything that he calls you to stop. If you follow Christ, then the same Spirit who raised him from the dead dwells within you and he will give you the power to stop. Decision one is start. Decision two is stop. Decision three is stay. Do you ever feel like quitting? When things get hard, quitting can seem like a great option. And we have some pretty big decisions to make about quitting, like at work. Should I take my chances and quit this job and look for something else? What about if you're a young adult? When you're looking for a husband or a wife, you might wonder if the relationship you're in has run its course. Could it be time to move on? If you're self-employed, maybe it doesn't look like the business is ever going to catch on. Maybe you should cut your losses and, you know, before things get any worse. In each of these examples, and with most of our major life choices, we often arrive at a fork in the road, and it's time to decide. Should I stay the course, or should I walk away? You know, there's plenty of times when you should just walk away. Sometimes the best thing you can do is allow that chapter of your life to end so you can start a new one. Before you decide, you really need to ask yourself, am I choosing to give up because of the, it is the right thing or just because it seems like leaving would be easier? But maybe the best and most rewarding decision you can make is to stay the course even when it would be much simpler to walk away. Sometimes the best decisions we make go against conventional wisdom and trends. That's why it's so important to listen to what God tells you, not everyone else. The Old Testament tells us a great story about this dilemma in the book of Ruth. We meet a woman named Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Their story begins with tragedy. First, Naomi's husband died during a famine. But she had two sons who both married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. About 10 years later, tragedy struck again and both of Naomi's sons died and that left all three women without husbands. And at that time, a widow without children was pretty much without hope or opportunity. Society wasn't set up for women to work, so a woman was dependent upon a husband for income and then on her children if her husband died. And through no fault of her own, Naomi's only option was to become a beggar which was a position in society even lower than a slave. Naomi was so gracious in her grim reality that she encouraged her daughters-in-law to return home, to return to their families. And after some convincing, Orpah realised that what Naomi was saying was right, and so she went home. While it was the easy thing to do, and certainly there was no shame in it, and of course it made the most sense, but Ruth saw things differently. 
Even though it would have been far easier for her to leave, she instead chose to stay and stick by her mother-in-law despite the uncertainty of the future. Naomi tried to talk her out of it, telling her sweetly in Ruth chapter 1, verse 15, Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. When Ruth told Naomi she was going to stay with her, it's serious. Because she was committing to that life. She's saying, we're family, even though I know it's going to be hard, family sticks together. And even more powerful than that, she says, I'm not going to back I'm not going to go back to the gods I had before. I'm choosing your God, Naomi, the one true God. I'm not just committing to you, I'm committing to him. It would be difficult to overemphasize just what a big deal this decision was and how costly it was for Ruth. Her decision was to become a beggar, less than a slave, right alongside Naomi. Can you imagine choosing that life on purpose? Can you imagine choosing that life on purpose? It doesn't make sense, yet that's exactly what Ruth did. She'd grown to love and trust Naomi. And more than that, she had chosen to place her trust in God. And so they began adjusting to a new life in a strange land. Ruth would go out into the fields after the harvest to pick up any leftover grain that the harvest had missed. And one day when she was doing this, a rich man named Boaz saw her in his field and had compassion for her. He gave her his permission to gather there and to drink from his well when she was thirsty. And he even instructed his workers not to bother her and to leave extra grain behind so she'd have enough. So why would a rich landowner like Boaz show such compassion to someone like Ruth? Well, it's because he'd heard her story. Look what he says to her in Ruth chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with their people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz had heard how selfless Ruth was and how selfless her decision was to decide to stay with Naomi and to provide for Naomi when it would have been easier for her to go. And not only did he compliment her for her loyalty to Naomi, but he also arranged for her life to be a little easier and then topped that off with a blessing. For Boaz to do this, it was truly unprecedented. Through a series of unusual events, Boaz ended up marrying Ruth. And after they married, Ruth and Boaz had a son. And if you trace the lineage of Jesus, you'll see that he came from her bloodline. Everything in Ruth's life changed. Why? Because she decided to stay when it would have been easier to go. It's also important for us to recognize that Ruth didn't stay because she thought there might be something in it for her. She was just hoping God would somehow bless her. No, she basically stayed because she believed it was right. And that's why God blessed her. And if you haven't already, you'll one day find yourself at a crossroads, at a place where you will have to make a difficult decision. Should I stay the course 
when it would be easier to go another way? Or a better question to ask is this, what does God want you to want? Sometimes the greatest act of faith is faithfulness, staying where you're planted. From where you're standing in your field picking up leftover grain, you may not be able to see your Boaz yet. But let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians 6, 9. And if you're tempted to walk away, make sure to seek God, because you never know what he might do if you have the courage to stay. Don't give up. Listen to what God is telling you he wants you to do. Sometimes the right, the right decision is to stay. And a bit like start and stop, what's the job of stay? It's go. We can't avoid change. Sometimes we're called to stand our grain when change blows in, but many times we need to take a risk. God may have planted a restless desire in you to serve him in some surprising way. Maybe he's even giving you a, a, a burden for a specific group of people or inhabitants of a special place. Maybe he's calling you to go, to follow that hunch, to see where it takes you, to take that leap of faith, to embrace the adventure. In Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram. At that time, he was living in a town called Haran but it was, uh, uh, and was from a city called Ur. Back in Abram's hometown of Ur, the people worshipped a false moon god named Nanar. What's significant here is that the one true God chose to reveal himself to Abram, a guise whose only exposure to religion was seeing some people worship the moon. God gave Abram a very simple, direct command. Walk away from everything you've ever known. Genesis 12.1 Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. Leave and go. Not a simple thing to do. But Abraham obeyed and left as the Lord told him to. If Abraham hadn't had the faith to obey God, who knows what consequences we might be living with today. I mean, we might not be worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We might be worshipping the God of Barry, Frank and, I don't know, Carl? <laughs> who knows, Right? There's going to come a chapter in each of our lives when we sense there's something new, something different that God wants us to do. But we'll have to leave where we are to get there. If you don't have the faith to go, if you let your fear keep you where you are, you won't know the blessings you're missing. If you go, you will get to find out what happens. But if you don't, you will never know what may have happened. The difference is that dull, nagging people, uh, feeling that most people call regret <coughs> or FOMO as the, the most recent you know, terminology. So where is God calling you to go? Does he want you to lead others spiritually? Maybe start a small group? Does he want you to take on new responsibility and commitment? Maybe even beginning ministry in the church? Maybe you're worried you're not good enough and that you don't know enough or, or, or to do something like that. But here's the thing. If you don't try, you'll never know what might have happened. If God is calling you to go, to step out, you're, you're going to have to leave where you are. You're going to have to leave that comfortable spot. And you sure don't want to miss out on what he's doing. But you have to take the first step. So stop making excuses. Take that first step of faith. Make a plan and execute it. 
respond in faithfulness. Whatever it is that you're supposed to go and do, write it down and remind yourself what your heart already knows. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. You believe God. You've been seeking Him. You've asked for His direction. Now you need to apply faith and take that first step and make that change. Move outside of your comfort zone. Risk failing and start over and exercise faith in the God who loves you so much that he gave his son for you. I pray that you'll find faith to go even when it would be easier to stay. Just take that first step. So decision one is start. Decision two is stop. Decision three was stay. Decision four, go. Decision five, we're not far off our seven. Decision five is serve. When you're starting a new pursuit, stopping a bad habit, staying in the midst of a storm, or taking a step of faith, you will discover that God is also asking you to serve others, connect with community, and trust Him with the outcome. They're the next three, by the way. These last three decisions will most likely emerge as byproducts of your first four best decisions. Serving, connecting, and trusting are naturally woven into our best decisions. They're intrinsic to who we are as followers of Jesus. Serving others doesn't always come naturally. You know, a child is self-centered and selfish, and as parents, we try to train that natural inclination of children to move from the focus off of themselves onto others. You know, we have to teach kids to share. That doesn't always come naturally. But we also... Um, have the messages of the world that are counteracting that all the time. And, and everything, all the messages from our world are saying to us is just reinforcing that self-centered world view. You're worth it, etc. One of the quickest ways to forget about God is to be consumed with yourself. Jesus had direct words for those who wanted to follow him. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me, Matthew 16, 24. We are called not to celebrate, promote, or advance ourselves, but to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross, to suffer through not having everything our way, to die to our selfish tendencies. One of the greatest joys in the Christian life is to serve others. This week we put on our first free summer fun day and I had the absolute, an absolute blast serving other people in our community and blessing our community, bringing hope in a practical way to our community. I certainly felt tired Wednesday night because it had been a big day. Who, who's with me? Um, but I also felt fantastic because I'd been able to serve others. Did you feel the same as well? Tired but fantastic. Sometimes as Christians, we get a little bit distracted from the call of Christ to serve others. We might move into a new area. People obviously, you know, are moving all the time. Lots of people are moving into Wayne Greta and welcome. If you're new, great to have you. Um, we might also feel like we're moving into a new area of our life. And sometimes we get a bit distracted from the call of Christ to serve others. And we, we, we get in a mindset that a lot of people sometimes call church shopping. Who's... Who in their past has done some church shopping? There's a few, I'm sure. You know, I, I heard someone who was church shopping and they made this comment. They said, we've been church shopping now for almost two months straight 
but we just can't find anything that works for us. We like the worship at one church, but the teaching wasn't deep enough. Then at this other church, we loved the teaching, but the kids' ministry was lame. We tried one church that we thought might be pretty cool, but no one talked to us the whole time we were there. And he finished by saying something that breaks my heart every time I hear someone say it. We just can't find a church that meets our needs. Have you heard that? And before I start sounding like a critical, out-of-touch pastor, I want to first of all say that I'm thrilled that this person and everyone like them wants to find a great church. I think it's important that we do find a great church. But the language in this conversation was troubling. For example, we are church shopping. It sounds like you're looking for the perfect item of clothing, right? And the phrase, I can't find a church that meets my needs, is one of the most unbiblical statements that can ever be uttered from a Christian's mouth. It's of the mistaken mindset where we see ourselves as spiritual consumers. The church is the product. We want to find a product that meets our needs. Before long, this polluted mindset creeps into our theology and it all becomes about us again. We forget that we're not made to be spiritual consumers, but that God has called us to be spiritual contributors. And the church does not exist for us. We are the church and we exist for the world. When our minds shift from being a spiritual consumer, it's all about me, what I want, what I get, what I prefer, to becoming a spiritual contributor, everything changes. I'm here to serve God and to love people. I exist to make a difference. I exist to bring hope. God created me to be a blessing to others. I'm here to do his will and to finish the work he has sent me to do. When we stop serving because it's the right thing to do and instead start seeing ourselves as servants, that's the moment when we die a bit more to ourselves and Christ is free to live through us and to bless others. So here's a prickly question to ask yourself. Am I more of a consumer or a contributor? If you're using your gifts to make a difference, inviting people to church, praying faithfully, tithing consistently, serving passionately, then I'd say that you are more of a contributor. We have to remember that we are the church and that God wants to use us to serve him. He wants to, us to use our gifts to strengthen his body. Romans 12.6 from the NLT says this, In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. What are the things that come easily and naturally to you that you can use to serve God and his church? God uses his church to feed and nourish his people. And God wants you to contribute, not just consume. Your spiritual food is to do the will of God and to finish the work of the one who sent you. And it's not just serving in the church, but it's serving as the church. This is why we're doing Summer Fun Days, so that we can serve our community as the church. The decision to serve may not feel natural at times, but when serving becomes our default ambition, we grow closer to God and experience more of who he made us to be. The moments when you choose to serve others 
to put their needs first determine the kind of stories that you tell tomorrow. Decision five is to serve. Decision six is connect. Deep connections with other people are becoming increasingly rare. There are a few reasons. People are working more, people are moving more frequently, getting divorced more often, and people are, are talking more online and less in person. Increasingly, more people are, are, even, are even screening their calls. For example, many people, when their phone rings, this might ring home true for a few of you, they don't answer. Instead, they let it go to voicemail. And then they, they might listen to that message later, if they leave a message, if convenient, and then might reply with a text if they feel like it. And through social media, where we're connected, yet we are never lonelier. Poverty used to mean only one thing. Now sociologists are acknowledging at least three types of poverty. One, material poverty, the lack of basic needs. Two, spiritual poverty, the lack of eternal meaning. And three, relational poverty, the lack of intimate friendships. This third one seems to have taken a lot of people by surprise, but if you think about it, you might realise that it's true for you as well. Something's wrong. Something's missing. Based on where you are right now, the decision you most need to make may be to connect with other people. The Apostle Paul is one example of when you decide to connect with people, you change the story you will one day tell. After Paul's radical transformation of having met Jesus, he immediately wanted to tell others about Jesus. The problem was that no Christian trusted him. And you can understand why. He was two seconds ago killing Christians, imprisoning them and, and harassing them. And Acts 29 says this, When Saul came to Jerusalem, his name was Saul, you know, then it came to Paul, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him not believing that he really was a disciple. It was like he was like an, almost trying to become an inside man. They were sceptical of him. And you can't blame them. And so Paul had a problem. He'd been transformed by Jesus, by the love and grace of Christ, and he wanted to tell others about that, but he had no credibility. Paul was one friend away from altering the course of his destiny, and that friend was a guy named Barnabas. Luke shows clearly how Barnabas lent Paul his credibility and put in a good word for him in Acts 9.27. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how Damascus he'd preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Paul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas staked his reputation on Paul's conversion. Barnabas vouched for his new friend's faith in Christ, telling other disciples about the passion that Paul had when he preached about Jesus, something that's hard to fake. You know, one friendship, one massive difference in Paul's life, an even bigger difference in the world. You may be one friendship away from changing your destiny if you decide to reach out and connect with the right people. You may be one connection away from changing the world. Another grand example of wonderful friendship from the scriptures is of David and Jonathan. Jonathan's father was trying to kill David, his friend, yet Jonathan went to David and helped him find strength in God. We all need friendships like David and Jonathan. It's not too late to connect with someone who will change your destiny. Your decision to connect 
will change the story you'll one day tell. And decision seven is trust. Will we trust that God is good even when life is not? If we decide to trust, we will grow in our faith, deepen in our intimacy with God, and be conformed to the image of Christ. But if we allow our hearts to drift, we'll wake up one day drowning in doubts, buried in burdens, and feeling far from the only one who can help us heal. The way we respond to challenges determines the story we will tell one day. Your decision to trust God in life storms may be one of the best ongoing choices that you will ever make. Trust God with whatever you've been holding back. Trust Him with your future spouse. Trust Him with your children. Trust Him with your career. Trust Him with your health. Trust Him with your finances. Trust Him without reservation. And I'm way out of time. May you be encouraged to discover divine direction in your life this year as you start, stop, stay, go, serve, connect, and trust. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do want to follow you in the big decisions in life and in the small decisions of life. Lord, I pray that we would seek your guidance. We would seek your divine direction. And that, Lord, we would make a decision to start where we are, Lord, and make the good decisions that form great habits that follow after you, that we would stop the sin that so easily entangles, that we would stay through the storms when you're calling us to, when things are getting hard, that we would persevere through those moments, that we would go and step out in faith and in new areas and take on new challenges uh, that you are guiding us into and seeing new things happening in our lives, that, Lord, we would serve, serve others and, and have a heart and a life that is, 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 is focused around others and not ourselves that we would connect deeply with other people and form those friendships with others that we so vitally need for our health and that, who knows, might change the world like it did with Barnabas and Paul. And Lord, may we continue to trust you, trust you in all moments, trust you in the hard times, trust you in the good times, trust you without reservation. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us uh, stand. Our final song for, for, the, for this morning, Who You Say I Am, a great uh, reminder that we are not our own. We are bought with a price.